Hey, Brian, how you doing today? Hey, it's been a good day. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't even know where to start with our, you our know, guest. I don't even know what day of the week it is anymore. I, half the time <laughs> I wake up and like the other day, I thought it was already Friday, but it was only Tuesday. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> That's so, a big miss. But, well, I mean, it's a big miss, but do the days even really matter anymore at this point? You know, we're recording this, um, you know, on May 22nd, 2020 right now, if anyone's listening to that. Um, so that, that's where my comment comes from that. But we had a great guest today, uh, Paul Powers of FISNA. And I'll, I'll put emphasis on Powers. I, I think he's appropriately named because his, I think that's a, uh, an apt descriptor of the way this man thinks. He's he the... Does. The CEO and co-founder, and and this is just one of the companies that he's <laughs> um, steered uh, in his in his young life because he's still a youthful guy, you know. And we we talked about you know data in three D world um, all the way down to leadership. So I think it's going to be a great episode for our listeners to uh, kick back and listen to. With that, I don't want to hold them up from you know having to listen. All right, great. Let's go, Nick. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. And we're thrilled to have Paul Powers as our special guest today. He is the CEO and co-founder of FISNA. Paul, welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I've got to ask you a little bit about your background to start with, because as I was doing some research and exploring a little bit about who you are, I found myself feeling suddenly incredibly inadequate (laughs) in in pretty much every way. Um, No, what you felt was that you're very focused, uh, probably. (laughs) My life is the definition of ADD, I think. I don't know. Brian was a DJ before and owned a nightclub, so... (laughs) <laughs> well, you you have a, a very unique background. Let's put it that way. Uh, you you seem to be a bit of a brainiac just looking at it on paper, but uh, you know certainly you've got a uh, trajectory for your career path that is uh, incredibly impressive. I I can't say that I can think of anyone else in the roster of folks that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot who have actually ranked in the Forbes 30 under 30. So tell us a little bit about yourself and and kind of how you got uh, an accolade of, of that sort, if you would, please. Sure, thank you. Um, so uh, how far back do you want me to go? You want me to go back to the moment of birth or uh, <laughs> recent? Uh, I don't know. Where you want me to start? Well, I, th- I thought it was interesting that you uh, graduated high school at, at a pretty young age and, and got yourself uh, into uh, an international uh, uh, university program. So that, okay. that might be an interesting place to start. Okay, I'll, just, I'll start in the post-puberty years then. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so growing up, I was homeschooled from a really early age, and uh, that's a long story as to um, why that happened. But... Um, I'll skip through that because um, my life's complicated enough without going into more detail. And <laughs> I don't need to. So um, the cool thing about being homeschooled is that uh, you get to really, especially when you're um, very nerdy and in other words, you could say self-motivated, but nerdy is another word for that. Um, <laughs> and you really actually like reading the stuff that, you know, your parents gotta leave you alone. And uh, after a while you're, you get away with not having to read things that you don't want to read because the, you know, they're not going to test you on that. They're going to take, you take a standard test that everyone the country takes essentially to homeschool. And they test you on things like math and reading comprehension and stuff, but they don't ask you, you know, to give any individuals, you know, from history's personal biography or anything. So it does, so I got to basically skip almost every English literature book, almost every uh, <laughs> American history, all the things that at that age I wasn't very interested in. Although I'm a big history buff, I am actually very passionate by it. But at the time I was just all in, and I still am. All in on like the math and sciences. So um, I got um, really, really focused there. And uh, it was cool because I had a lot of flexibility, even from a scheduling standpoint. You know, um, I got to, you know, spend my free time um, engaging um, with individuals, you know, who were um, maybe teaching these classes at school or whatnot. So I went to, I was able to go to uh, take a, a single, I mean, I wasn't going to college at this point, but I got to take a, a single course and, um, chemistry when I was uh, 12, which was really cool because um, I felt that game like I was like an adult, I said I'm not messing around. 
Um, so that was kind of neat. And then um, when I got, by the time I was 16, I got, um, you know, I mean, I already, from a standardized testing perspective, I was fine. I was, you know, but if you, I mean, to this day, you could say I haven't graduated high school from, from the perspective of I very bad understanding of American history and there are a lot of books I haven't read. Um, <laughs> so I guess you could look at it two ways. But um, I, I was at 16, I went to Harvard and I did, um, I studied astronomy and astrophysics. And then I decided that it was like my first time away from home. And I thought, hey, this is cool. So I wanted to get out further, went over to Switzerland for an exchange year, got a scholarship to go there and uh, thought it'd be, you know, it would be fun. Um, I thought I'd be, I, I just thought German would be a cool language to learn. And um, I have a little bit of Swiss ancestry in me anyway. And I thought that'd be kind of neat to just go see the Alps. And I uh, found out that Swiss German is extremely different than regular German, but I kind of learned it twice. But uh, <laughs> I learned the language over there. And then um, I was also kind of at that age going through this period where I was like, I don't know if I should really stay in the sciences or if I should go into business. And the reason was that in the background this time, we started seeing, you know, Mark, uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, we saw uh, Elon Musk, maybe not, not quite yet, but, you know, uh, uh, Steve Jobs and certainly Bill Gates for, have been, for a while really been the ones that were changing the world. And the people who I've grown up watching on the History Channel and that still has history on it, uh, it, it you know, like Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton, it, it seems I, I kind of came to a realization at some point that, you know, in the past, you used to be able to change the world by having a whiteboard or a blackboard and writing down everything. And nowadays it felt like to me at the time, um, especially after I started studying sciences, I realized you have to have a grant for everything. You have, you can't just go, you know, research. You have, you have to, have, you have to have money behind you. You have to have a team behind you um, and business interests and political interests and other interests are the ones that drive that. So I thought maybe it's more important that I try to just um, lead a team than, than trying to actually be the individual contributor. So I decided to, um, it was a tough decision, but I thought, okay, maybe I should go into either business or law. I didn't really, I thought that, you know, at the age of 16, I started my first company and I always had this feeling that, you know, business is a lot of, at least like the basics of business doesn't really require an MBA. If you, I mean, it's, there's certainly a lot you can learn from an, uh, getting an MBA, but I didn't sure. necessarily feel like it was a necessary thing to start your company. Um, so especially for a really technical company, that's a little bit different than what you've learned in MBA school. So I thought, okay, I want to get a degree though. I don't want to just you know, drop out. So um, I uh, got into the University of Heidelberg over in Germany, uh, which is kind of like their uh, own little Harvard. It's a really old school. It was uh, as I told this university over there, and um, which is neat because of, because it was founded in I think 1386. Wow. Um, they actually have like a student jail still from back when. <laughs> so that was that was really cool. Um, and they they were talking about you know there's still pictures and drawings and stuff about people and people were still dueling and they're like oh don't remember the times when we only spoke Latin in the university. It, it's fascinating to, you can almost go back into medieval times there. Um, anyway, so I, I studied law and uh, at the time I had heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I was told like uh, a few times like, hey, if you've actually passed the bar over here, you'll be the first guy to, at least the first, you'll be the first American to have come over here and learn the language and then passed the bar. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. Maybe I'll have some kind of advantage. And um, so I, I did that and realized after I did it why nobody else had done it before. <laughs> it was really, really, really hard. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about the world's most difficult, useless degree, it's going over to another country, learning their language, and then taking their bar exam and coming back. Right? So uh, very useless degree. But I never wanted to be a lawyer. So that made, that made it okay. I thought hey, law is a useful degree to have if you want to go into business. It helps you with negotiations. It helps you with um, deductive reasoning. It helps you with research. Um, it, you learn a lot of skills from it. And it, it's also just, it's, it's a pretty tough program. So I thought, that this is, if I'm going to go into anything, you know, law is a good thing to go to. And um, you also meet a lot of people by being a lot of connections, which thought, you know, that if maybe that would be helpful, was the thinking. So I went over there and I, I had you know, run companies this entire time. So I don't come from a wealthy family but, um, or anything. So I had to, you know, pay for it. Luckily, university in Germany was free, um, but I still had to stay alive, you know, and have some sort of good money. Um, so I always had a company. Ever since I was 16, I've always had one, uh, one or another company and, and they've always been in the um, technical area. There was, there was been like technical companies. So the first company I started was a tutoring company, but very quickly that morphed into um, like an automated, uh, <laughs> system, you know, where, where it was, uh, people were doing like remote tutoring and uh, you would set up your own account and all that other fun stuff. So it, everything turned pretty technical pretty quickly. And um, 
but I always felt like I wanted to do something bigger. You know, my my life goal was I want to leave a big footprint and point in the right direction for humanity. I think the biggest asset we have in life is time. And uh, the biggest privilege we have is the people that came before us who just left these amazing contributions that we get to, you know, sort of live off of. It, people, uh, you know, there are a number of people in history who stand out, um, not just Einstein and Newton, but uh, people back there like Galileo and Aristotle. And uh, I mean, more recent people like Tesla and, and others who have um, really just made some unbelievable advancements that have kind of leapfrog, helped humanity leapfrog uh, forward in technology a lot faster than the, than the current pace at any given time. And I thought, you know, those people really are the ones that I looked up to. I thought it'd be so cool to do that. And I, I felt more of a moral obligation to it than anything because I felt like, man, I'm, I'm so lucky that I'm not dying of some plague right now. Uh, I'm not starving to death. I don't have, I've never had the hunt to survive. Uh, you know, all these things are great. And I have those luxuries because, um, because people who came before me and, you know, advanced science and technology forward. So I thought I want to do something bigger in these little companies that I was doing during law school. And so I um, put a lot of thought into what actually set time aside to really, really focus on what I wanted to do. And uh, one day finally figured it out. And, uh, I looked at one of the biggest problems that we had, and um, my focus in law was IP law, intellectual property. Because if you're, you're a really geeky, nerdy guy, and you're in law, that's where you go, is intellectual property law. Because that's like sure. law, right? So, yeah. um, so that was my focal point. And um, I, it's, it's, it's funny, when, because when you're, um, when you're in that field, you, you do it actually, you are familiar with algorithms, because you use them all the time. You, you use them for plagiarism detection, for detecting when people are stealing to those logos and all the other fun stuff. But we can never prevent um, the theft of a patent, right? That was the problem. Like, it was always reactionary. It was always reactive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone stole my patent. This is patent infringement, and now we're going to sue them. And it's a multi-million dollar suit, and it's going to take forever, and, it, and everyone loses. And if you look at the macroeconomic effect of patent infringement, um, it's first of all, start with the, the, the economics of it. It's about ten trillion dollars a year worldwide um, is lost. So the, the, Everyone has a different estimate, but that seems to be the consensus is that around now we've got about $10 trillion in annual loss globally to patent infringement and IP theft. And um, in addition to that, you, it also has a really terrible side effect, which is that if you don't have intellectual property, you don't have as much research and development because at the end of the day, you're not going to invest in R&D if somebody else can just wait there patiently for you to be finished um, inventing something. And then all the money that they didn't spend on research and development, they're now going to spend on marketing and they're going to take your, steal your idea and be successful with it, right? <laughs> so um, it, it's kind of a race to the bottom. It's like, okay, we can make stuff the cheapest with the least amount of innovation. And um, and, and that's not a good direction for humanity to go. So I, was, I thought it'd be really good if we could actually, you know, create a little bit of order here. Um, and so... I real, after realizing we couldn't really find these 3D models people were using to design physical parts, um, I, I thought, okay, there's got to be something out there that does. And um, anyway, I was kind of really focused on this point and realized that this was a big deal. And also was thinking about it from a macro-technical perspective, which is, hey, there's these stages of humanity. And I really like, uh, you know, some of the people I like to um, read are like uh, Ray Kurzweil, for example. You know, they have these, uh, whether or not you believe all their um, prognosis is irrelevant, but they're just fascinating because they have these really macro long-term views of where technology will eventually lead us. And, um, and after a while, you start to think about it in terms of where we are along this continuum. And at some point, we have to get to a point where physical and digital are not totally different things anymore, right? We're, we're going to emerge. Um, and so I really view this as a really cool thing to focus on. I moved back to the U.S. and um, I... Um, I found my co-founder, um, his name is Glenn Warner. He unfortunately passed away last year, but, um, but I met up with him and, and we started this company and well, we started this idea. It wasn't even a company yet. And we tried like everything on the market. Cause we, we didn't find things that said geometric shape search or whatever. We thought, I guess that looks good. And none of it worked. It was, I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was awful. It was never going to work at, at all. I mean, every file type would mess it up. Something was with a different orientation would mess it up. Um, it, and it failure drives success, right? Well, I mean, we're talking about, yeah, but we couldn't modify the software. This is other people's software. So we're like, okay, well, I can't use that to uh, create this tool. You know, so I, we didn't really set out to create a fundamental technology from the beginning. It was just, let's, let's try to solve this use case. But when we realized that nothing could solve it, we thought, okay, then we have to choose between either giving up on this idea, but I moved back from Germany, so I don't know if I really want to do that, or, um, 
we're going or really going after this and not just solve it for the sake of this use case, but solve this problem in a more macro sense where we do break down these issues that are, I mean, we under, we figured out why none of these programs were able to actually do what they were, we, we were hoping they would and um, searching between models in a way that was uh, file agnostic and with that, um, that really does break down that, those borders between physical and digital by saying, hey, this thing is related to this part in this way, even though it's not a duplicate of it, right? And I can see how this part is inside of that part or how this can merge together. And uh, nothing would do that. So we decided we have to actually create our own technology. And um, actually it was uh, some of the stuff that we used in astrophysics that like, yeah, inspired me to come up with uh, an idea anyway that led to um, this work done some algorithms together. It took years, but eventually we got it to work. And um, we talked to people about an industry. We showed them demos and said, look, I can tell you that these two things are different or they're similar or they're related or, this is, or that they're inside of each other. And they said, well, why on earth are you trying to go solve intellectual property problems? Because we have major issues with things we already have like we have issues in engineering uh we have issues in uh, procurement we have issues in um less than a tenth of our employees who should be exposed to 3d models are because it's too complicated to work with them um, people don't utilize the data that they have in 3d to uh, identify supplier alternatives they don't the engineers in the physical world uh, it's like mechanical engineers they are only one-fifth as productive as um uh, software engineers because they don't have simple tools like search, copy paste, uh, you know, auto <laughs> like spell check. Uh, you know, they, they don't have the equivalent of that in 3D. So um, there are a lot of big issues to solve. And so we decided, okay, let's just create, uh, let's go solve, let's create a version of the software that solves kind of everything, or not everything, but a lot of the, the, those core use cases in, in, a, in a very direct way. And then let's uh, turn this into a platform so that people can actually this, let's make this a core technology that other people can use with APIs so that um, other use cases that we heard about, like in healthcare, where they um, there's a suspicion that you could be use business technology, um, which is proprietary, but, but you know they could maybe lease that from us or they use that from us to find tumors at a much earlier stage than you can with two-dimensional artificial intelligence because mm -hmm. with four-dimensional you've got a lot more data and. Um, so there are a lot of use cases that we've been exploring. Uh, we've been really blessed with the company. It's gone uh, really well. We've uh, been able to attract some really great investors and some really great talent. And uh, I'm, I'm super excited about it. We've got a couple of press releases that'll be coming out here in the next month or two. Um, they'll be making some pretty big announcements about what we're doing. Uh, so it'll be easier to talk about what some of those big accomplishments are. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so anyone who listens to it before July is just going to have to trust me on it or just wait. Uh, but we'll make a couple of really cool announcements and I'm really excited about what we're doing. And so that, that was my ridiculously long answer to your very short question. No, that's, that's great. It's, uh, it's a mouthful. But, you know, there's, there were two things that came out of that. And, you know, one, my, my clarification to uh, only two, only two, uh, you know, one of the things for every 10 minutes I talk, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is going to be a five hour podcast. So, yeah, so yeah. buckle up. <laughs> so, you know, uh, my, my comments about uh, failure breeds success, you know, my, the, the point being that as you observe what was in the marketplace, no one else had, had really solved the problem that was the, the critical problem that you were looking at, um, that you were trying to solve. Uh, and that, that in turn, uh, from, from what you were saying, sounds to me like it ended up ultimately laying the foundation for you making the decision that you had to develop something independently. Is that accurate? Totally, yeah. Uh, the, best, uh, the best things that have ever happened to me have been failures, honestly. Uh, and I know that's cliche, but that's uh, very true. Because I think what, sometimes when things don't work out the way that you want them to, you have to reassess, um, I don't want to say where you're going, but how you're going there. And uh, maybe if you're, if you might be able to get to a bigger goal, you know, I mean, I like to think goal first, but sometimes you realize there's a bigger goal behind that goal that you could actually aim for another. Um, and by realizing that the path that you're on is not going to get you to that smaller goal, you can realize, hey, wait a minute, now I'm on a highway and this will take me to a much bigger goal than I was thinking of when I was on the dirt road. Right. So I think that sometimes that's, um, Sometimes these successes, they really do breed, um, uh, sorry, failures, they really do breed success. And that, you know, part of what I heard, uh, particularly in your TED Talk, was related uh, particularly to, uh, you know, how, how much focus is given to those things that are not those bigger goals, right? There's, there's a lot of wasted effort that, uh, that is being directed onto things that are, that are these smaller areas of fulfillment when ultimately all of us could be, you know, on a trajectory, kind of as you're describing for your own personal path, uh, where we're driving towards those things that 
that uh, they may be harder. They may take, uh, you know, uh, greater collective effort, you know, to, to achieve them. Um, but ultimately, they can be achieved in, in just as short a time as some of these other smaller objectives. It's just maybe people aren't thinking big enough about what those, those goals should be. Well, I think the problem with the TED Talk was, was, was first of all, that, uh, that I was mentioning, but also that um, one of the things that we've discovered uh, when we, while working on TISNA um, is that a lot of people on the mechanical side or on the 3D side, or the physical side, I should say, of, of innovation, they have a much harder time innovating than people realize. And so these tools that are missing are making it so much harder to innovate um, than it needs to be. And, and it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's a good reason, let's put it this way, less than 1% of software has the ability um, to deal with three-dimensional data that has to do with products, right? So everything that's in the world is three-dimensional. Every Even an atom is three-dimensional. So everything is three-dimensional. Um, and less than 1% of software can actually analyze 3D data. Over 70% of our economy is in physical goods, physical products, real things, right? Not just um, digital things. And actually most of the digital um, products that we have relate to physical things. You can actually say it's a much larger percentage of our economy, but let's just be gracious and say it's less than, you know, way less than 30% of our economy is actually digital. And and by the way, that's, that's, that's not like a transition that's going to happen. It's not like digital is gonna become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The reality is that digital is, is big because it helps us with the physical, right? Uh, Zoom uh, or, um, or Google Hangouts, they're, um, they're digital products but they're facilitating a physical interaction. Mm -hmm. And the um, same is true for almost any app that you can think about. And there's a natural limit to how far you can go before you actually have to reach reach back into the physical world. So the vast majority of our economy and every economy in the world is, is physical. And all of that is untapped considering that software, which is where the innovation is happening, almost none of it deals with it. So um, if, we had this, if we could apply software to the physical world, Right, you would have this tremendous explosion of economic value, but also in innovation, right? Because I'd be able to, because in software you can innovate very quickly, right? I mean, you, I mean, there are people uh, at our company who could build a, a you know pretty cool program for you overnight if they had to, and um, you could never develop a physical product that fast because you have to you have to design it, then make it. You have to figure out who's going to uh, supply the parts. You have to figure out how do you even start to design something? Oh, what, what, what software? You have to use software. You can't just draw something on a napkin. You have to, the people know how to make that. So I mean, it, it, there's a really big learning curve to even know how to begin to invent something. And then even if you did invent it, okay, so you know you spend uh, years learning how to design something and it's really complicated 3D software, uh, like cat software, and then then what? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna, I mean, unless you have a very simple product or you, can just, you can't put it in a 3D printer. I mean, that's, that's a great advancement, by the way, because you can make simple products, but what if you design a mechanical watch? Then you're gonna need other parts and you're gonna need them to be assembled and you're going to need uh, a, a lot of different types of parts that come from a lot of different types of manufacturing processes. So, um, you know, you might spend two weeks designing a mechanical watch, you know, spend two years sourcing the suppliers of it. So it's slow and hard to innovate in, in the, the real world. And that's kind of a really big frustration that I've got because at the end of the day, even though I am a big proponent of physical and digital merging, the slowdown of uh, physical technology, real world technology, impacts and impedes our ability to advance in software. Um, there are, would be, I mean, think about it. At the end of the day, the cloud is physical, right? Uh, everyone talks about cloud technology. The cloud is a series of physical boxes, right? These are actual servers that just aren't at your location. That you're connected to them via the internet, but you're, they're, not, they're not, it's not literally a cloud. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a physical thing. Wait, so what? if it, our cloud <laughs> becomes more powerful and our hardware becomes more powerful, right? When we have hardware advancements, we have software advancements. And so at some point we, we get to this limitate. Uh, so there's a limitation there. And that's really what I was expressing about from a, from a larger perspective. It's not just that individuals aren't setting large enough goals. It's that even if you do set a large goal, it's um, in a large area of our economy, the vast majority of our economy, it's been impossible to, or very, very, very hard to make the advancements that you can do. But a lot of people have, and that's a, I, I talked about the idea of a flying car. I feel like everybody in the universe, everybody on earth has either thought of a flying car, seen a flying car in a movie, or heard of the concept of a flying car, right? This is nothing that I invented, but nobody around us is flying around in cars. Um, and okay, there are a couple of prototypes out there for sure, but seriously, there's no actual flying car that people would go out and buy today and actually, you know, legally fly around, right? So, and, and the reason for that is because 
even though everybody has this idea, and I'm sure some, I'm sure a great number of people have been actually very motivated to say, I'm going to make the first flying car, it's really, really, really hard because it's not just one idea. It's many, many, many ideas uh, that are all physical that have to go together into making that idea a reality. And it's so slow and so complicated and so expensive and, and difficult to, to innovate in, three, in the real world with machinery that um, cars are pretty much the same as they were 10, 20 years ago. The big advancement outside of okay, the battery side is another area, but, uh, but you know, if you're sitting in a car, it's almost the same as it was 20 years ago. The big difference is really the technology in the car. The software is what's big, the big change in your car, not so much the engine. You still use rubber wheels. You still have a, a you know a steering wheel that you use to direct yourself around traffic, but um, you have a screen in front of you. And in the case of like a Tesla, it'll automate, it'll, it'll drive itself, right? So software is making amazing advancements. Just imagine what the world would look like if hardware could keep up. Sorry, I'm, again, I'm another rampage there. Sorry. <laughs> I'm no, just drinking coffee. That's my problem. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll bet it's not just the coffee. No, it's. You <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It's, it's a it's a very uh, terrible case of ADD. I'm sure. <laughs> well, so, you, you seem to be thinking a lot more thoughts than probably the average person does per minute. So, uh, um, which uh, you know, I, I imagine at times uh, makes it challenging for your mouth to actually keep up with what, where your brain is. I'll take that as a compliment. I think that's, uh, <laughs> although I have some people do say that at, at certain points I um, sound like an auctioneer. Um, I kind of ramble kind of fast. So, you, but if you watch the TED talk and how slowly I was talking, I was very deliberate there. <laughs> very <laughs> deliberate. Uh, the one thing I thought the entire time was just don't talk. You're, you're almost slow down. Well, you, well, you executed that well. It was yeah, yeah, I, it was, yeah. It was clear it was deliberate. I really enjoyed it. And, and you brought up the whole point and what you said about the car, but you brought the thing about the mobile phone, right? It's the glass rectangle. And I had never thought about that until you said that. And I was like, well, you know, when I think back when I got my first iPhone in 2008, it really hasn't iterated that much since then. It's still a rectangle with a battery. Um, mm -hmm. It still does pretty much everything that it did the first day it came out. And where's the iteration on that? And some of that, I guess you, you brought up great points about it being, you know, it's hard to, you know, test rapid develop in the physical world because um, you have to actually go out and machine the product and then get an assembly line together and everything. Um, so I think it's all great points that you brought up and, and it, it got me really thinking when I listened to that. Well, I'm glad. And it's, it, you, your, soft, your phone has changed, but it's been in, uh, in software that's changed the most. There have been physical changes, but tiny, you know, insignificant physical changes. And just imagine if you could, if every time you had an idea for a, I'm pretty convinced that everybody is a natural inventor. The biggest assets humans have is our creativity, right? Um, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good you are at math, no matter how fast you think or slow or whatever, you'll never catch up to a computer because that's, that's something that computers do extremely well is, is quick, simple, you know, pre-programmed reasoning. Um, but creativity is something that is very hard to duplicate um, in, in a computer environment. And so what, what makes humans really unique, and also from the animal kingdom's perspective, right? What makes us stand out is that we're inventive. And the fact that we're not utilizing that is upsetting, but imagine what the world would look like if uh, if you could have anything you could think of, right? If you could develop anything you could think of. And even though I'm frustrated that we haven't been there in the past, we are heading in that direction. And um, you know, our, our software is a very small, um, well, I don't know how small or large it is, but it's, it's a component to get there, right? But um, there are other components as well. 3D printing is a, a small step. Um, I have a 3D printer. It's slow. I mean, that, and it builds things in plastic. It, it's not exactly like in Star Trek where it makes anything something like you'd like, but it's a small step in the right direction. Um, we are heading, though, pretty quickly in the, in the direction where you'll be able to um, innovate as fast as you can think, innovate at the speed of your imagination. But that's really what I think is a critical thing. And we're very close to that in the digital world, right? And the if you're a coder, you can almost, you can have an idea for a program you want to build. And maybe it's not as fast as you can think of it, but you can, you know, over overnight or within a reasonable period of time, you know, you can code up some at least simple version of that. Um, in the physical world, we're nowhere near that point yet. But when we get there, um, 
it's 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 going to be really amazing. I'm really excited about that. And I think that that's and the, I think this is a very moral issue because the fact that we can't innovate and there's still people who are performing very manual tasks and a lot of people will swear they've never been they never invented anything. I don't believe them. I'm pretty sure that everybody like I can't remember the last thing I thought of that is an, a physical invention. Um, but that doesn't mean they've never thought about something that would be useful to have. I'm pretty sure that we every human being is at some point in their life had an idea for an invention, but they've very, 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 very few have executed on it. And um, so that's kind of the, the point that I was trying to make there. And I think that the world's going to be a much cooler place in the next 30 years than it was in the last 30. So how do you, oh no, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Go ahead, Nick. So how, how do you foster that creativity and make that, you know, that action happen? Um, it, like, what do you like to do? When, when you come up with an idea, obviously you came up with this idea to, to taking the 3D model. So what's your thought process behind that? Because like you said, a lot of people have ideas. A lot of people are like what they call an idea guy, right? They come up with an idea, but it's very difficult to be the person who actually executes that. Um, so so how, how do you like to go from the idea to the execution? Is there like some process you like to go through or like, do you just kind of find an idea you like to do and then roll with it and, and try to make it happen? No, I probably roll with one out of every million ideas. I mean, you, you can't roll with every idea. That, that's what's frustrating, right? Is that and just like everybody else, um, you know, I have, I'm sure I have way more ideas than I can actually execute on. You can't execute in every idea you have. It'd be impossible. Um, I'm not building five different companies, a hundred different companies right now. I'm building one, right? I'm building Fizna, mm -hmm. and that's it. And that's and I have no intention of going on to the next thing anytime soon. I, I, this is my obsession. This is what I want to focus on as, as long as I possibly can as, and, and take as far as it, it's, I can take it. Um, but, but I do have other ideas. What I do is I typically write them down somewhere and I, and I leave them. The ideas I have typically end up being business ideas because that's the area that I'm in. But, um, and I write those down. Physical ideas like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I had this, uh, you know, some kind of like scooter that would just fly around? Or wouldn't it be cool if I had a, a, a shovel that would go shovel the driveway for me and I wouldn't have to go out right now when it's cold? And free? That would be like those kind of ideas. I, I don't do anything on them, right? I just, I don't even write them down. I'm just like, yeah, that's just uh, unrealistic, right? Is the way that I chalk up my mind. And um, so I don't do anything with them. And mm -hmm. that's what's frustrating is because. It, some people do. Some people go out, uh, about and uh, go out and actually start um, making progress there. But um, in a physical, with physical ideas like that, with, with real-world inventions, and not just you know software programs, it's um, it's expensive. It's hard, and um, it's, it's impossible to figure out how to get started if you don't already know how to use CAD software. And these these tools are expensive. These tools are not intuitive. They're they're very difficult to use. And like I said, in the best case scenario, when you're done, you can have a 3D model of it. Um, we're getting to a place though where technology is, is, is making it simpler. So my biggest idea in life is to enable other people to execute on their ideas more easily. So if, if you do have an idea for a shovel that's, uh, you know, shovels the snow for you, um, you can be, uh, you can go about designing that without having to first figure out how to use a program for three years mm -hmm. of college, four years of college, right? Um, and also figure out after that, how do I go about manufacturing this part? How do I go about putting this thing together without having to have a bunch of friends in supply chain and a bunch of connections to all the different companies you would need to put that thing together and then also having the, the right tools at your house to connect it. You know, what, what we're trying to do at FISNA is simplify that by making it, um, by making the, the, what we do is we take these, these models, we take the data and we codify them. So we basically say, this is a codification, a codified representation of this, Thing in the real world and what that allows us to do is if you're not an engineer we can show you the 3d model but then we can also we can show you the analysis of it and we can make predictions about it so if you don't know what you're looking at you're looking at a complicated little piece we can tell you well this is what this is this is what it's for this is what should be made out of and this is who should make it um, if you have an idea and let's say you have designed it um, you have a mechanical watch let's say um, what we do then is we say okay here's the we have like a um, we have a product that I, I'm not going to announce here because it's not in the press release yet, but uh, <laughs> it kind of takes the universe of 3D models, right? It's kind of like a Google for 3D. And what that'll do is if you upload your, your mechanical watch uh, into this platform, then it'll say, okay, all this is your watch. This is These are the parts inside. And if you haven't labeled them or separated them, you know, it'll say these are all the parts that you have to go into your watch. And these are all the places um, that su supply those parts and or here are all the places that can manufacture those parts. And so all you have to do is say, okay, cool, that's great. And so it, it, it does all the heavy lifting for you. 
And the idea is, um, and that's, by the way, that's useful for professionals, obviously, because it takes a lot of their time. It lets them focus on more important matters. It saves them time, saves them money. But it's also, that's the enterprise version. But the the but it's really intended to eventually get us to the point where anybody can go through the entire process um, of not just having the idea, but executing it and uh, actually having that thing in your hand at the end of the day. That's really cool. It's almost like the uh, open software approach, right? Where... I don't have to know how to make all these libraries that somebody else spent time doing. If I want to, you know, grab something that makes a webhook call, I have something to build off of. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's really cool when you think about it that way. Because when you're talking about making a watch, I, I think I go back to being, you know, a kid and and buying a VCR and taking it apart just because I wanted to see how it works. And you know, it's like plugging it in, pulling off the thing, watching how things move, and slowly, one by one, trying to figure out what it was doing reverse engineering it i guess basically um and what you're explaining i just just made me feel like a kid again it's like oh and it'd be so cool to just you know take a picture of something and say you know this is that gear and you can buy it from you know this supplier in china or or india um i mean it's just really awesome yeah, tech like guys we love our libraries <laughs> yeah. about making you feel like a kid again because you know it's funny most people when they think about the last time they had an idea for a physical invention they were a kid uh, uh, kids have a lot of ideas for and for physical admissions. The reason that adults don't um, is because we're, we're jaded, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think about things like this as much anymore, even though I work in this field of enabling other people. I'm, I'm sure that even if we had the ability to do everything that I just talked about, I probably wouldn't be the most prolific inventor of things at all. I would probably be one of the least prolific inventor <laughs> of physical things. But And I'm sure that my little nephew or niece, they would be, you know, much more prolific and in inventing all kinds of stuff. And I don't know if they'd be good or mentions or not, but they'd be much more prolific about it because um, they're not jaded because they haven't ever tried and failed before and real or ever had to realize, oh, wait, that's actually really complicated. That's really hard to do. It's always been hard to do, by the way. I'm not saying this is a recent thing. It's just a lot of people have had ideas for physical things for a really long time, and it's always been very hard to build those things. It's not new. It's just we've realized that it's possible with software to do what you said, you know, to take different mm -hmm. components and open environment and stick them together and say, there we go, that's a new invention, right? I don't, I don't have to innovate so much to get this whole thing already out the door. Um, and we're working on getting there from a physical perspective too. It won't be much longer, but I think I think the next few years are gonna it's gonna be very transformative, not just because of this now, but because of um, overall other trends that are happening in the economy. Um, it, it, let's put 3D printing to the side. There's this other trend which is which includes 3D printing, but it's more mac, uh, macro, which is advanced manufacturing in general, where it's which I think is really the next step stuff. Not so much that uh, yeah, eventually I'm sure everyone will have some kind of device in their house that makes some things magically. Uh, at some point in the future, sure. Right now, in the near future, the foreseeable future, I think what's going to happen is you're probably going to have fulfillment centers and then you know, very, very close to you. And if you ask for something, um, it, you won't have to go on to Amazon.com and look for a, uh, a thing and hope that you find something that is similar to what you have in your mind, right? Because when you go on, on Amazon to buy something, you have an idea of what you want. You already know what you're looking for, and, or, unless you're just browsing for the heck of it. Um, that's dangerous, by the way. Yeah, that is dangerous, yeah. <laughs> they, they do a really good job of that. <laughs> yeah. so you go to the front right. and you buy something totally unrelated. <laughs> like, if you know what you're looking for, you, know, you go in there and uh, you, you search and you spend a lot of time looking. And you, the reason you buy other stuff, I guess, is because you, you were frustrated trying to find what you came there for and begin, begin with. And um, in the future, what I think will happen is you'll have an idea for something. You won't have to bother looking for if that exact same thing is available already, you'll just say, okay, this is what I want. And you'll either design it, you describe it, you do something like that. And a nearby fulfillment center will manufacture that part on demand, right? Um, with, with multiple complex, expensive machines, which is why I'm not, I think that's going to happen before you do it at home. And, and this is already happening, by the way. There are already, you know, networks of uh, fulfillment centers that do this on, on, you know, a little bit larger scale. But I think eventually we'll get down to the consumer level where you'll have an idea for something and you won't have to actually 3D design it. You'll just ex explain it or maybe you'll describe it. The computer will design it for you um, or maybe you'll design it, but it'll be like putting Lego blocks together. It won't be very complicated. And from there, you'll, um, the fulfillment will be automated and you'll have it at your house. And, and that's really what I think is going to happen in the next 10 years is, is we'll see that we're not, what we go from a consumer economy to a, an inventor consumption, uh, inventor plus consumer economy, essentially. 
So that that sounds to me like you know the, the magic of AI starting to to play a role in in some of that and and some of what you had touched on earlier, just in, in terms of describing the challenges and the uniquenesses around human creativity. It, it it made me think of a book by Ray Kurzweil called How to Create a Mind: The, the Secret mm-hmm, of Human mm-hmm. Thought Revealed. And yeah. you know, certainly as as we're as we're nearing that singularity, right? As we're nearing that 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 merging of of the physical and and digital that uh, that you know he's so famous for for describing in the singularity. Um, you know, I'm curious with what you're doing. Uh, how does that start to correlate with changes and evolutions that are going to be required with things like AI? So uh, that's a great question. So what we're doing is um, a step that has to happen to get to what you would call singularity, right? Um, And everyone has a slightly different definition of it. But I really do think that a 100% merger of physical and digital is pretty much the definition of singularity, right? And most people can agree that that, that if you really do merge the two where you can't really differentiate, or it doesn't matter, then you have singularity. So to do that, the first thing that has to happen is software has to understand the world around it. Right, and it, it doesn't. Um, it, it inherently does not, and there is a reason for that. It's, it doesn't understand it because software is a two-dimensional line of thought. It, 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 software works in two D. It, it, it's code, right? It, it's uh, looking at data, and, and humans operate really well in a two D environment. We simplify things now. So um, if you go online to buy a fridge or, or, or a phone or whatever, you're going to type. You're going to create text, which is two-dimensional, to describe what you're thinking about. Uh, or you'll take a picture, which is a, also happens to be two-dimensional, and you'll put that in there and try to search that way. You, you will uh, naturally, it's, it's easy for a computer to process in 2D. It's just a lot less data. As soon as you get into 3D, now you're in a really complex area of um, for your computer. And a really good analogy would be, think about the difference between a telegram and the internet, right? Everything on the internet. Everything on the internet versus a telegram. Right, um, it, or like Morse code. Right, Morse code is a pretty good example of single dimensional. Right, dot, 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 dot. You know, whatever. That is all one line. It's not multi. That's not even two dimensional. It's one dimensional data. Right, um, two dimensional data is everything that we're doing right now. <laughs> everything that's going on right here with my in the in, you know uh, between. Uh, us talking in totally different parts of the country, um, all the technology, all the, the ability to communicate like this is the quantum leap between dot, 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 which someone might understand, but most of us won't, um, to a binary uh, two-dimensional system. It's a huge leap in technology. So imagine, if you will, if you were to multiply, if you, if you look at the difference between Morse code and modern technology, uh, and modern software, and you multiply modern software by that same multiplier, right? Another dimension, you get into insane areas of technology. The areas that are actually, honestly, hard to verbalize. They're hard to describe, and they're hard to even really imagine because it's it's not human nature to think in exponential terms. We were, as biological creatures, we like to think linearly, right? So we don't we think, oh yeah, it'll uh, I'll have a better car in two years. Well, in reality, technology doesn't move like that. Technology does and should move exponentially. So people think, oh, in the next 30 years, we'll innovate like we did in the last 30. No, ideally, within the next 10, we'll innovate like we did in the last 30. And then the next year after that, we'll innovate like we did in the, you know, the last 30. So it should be an exponential uh, growth. And um, so to get where we need to be, we have to, uh, to get 2D to understand 3D, what we do in FISNA is we, um, we have those proprietary algorithms that break things down into a code that's pretty, it's, it's very complicated how it works. It's a series of algorithms though. And it turns everything into code regardless of the file format, et cetera. And then that basically creates what's something very similar to DNA. This is why we use the analogy of DNA. So physical DNA is where FISNA comes from. And that allows us to understand every single thing that can be expressed about that three-dimensional model. And uh, just like DNA, right, DNA also can be expressed in 2D, right? It's a A, T, G, A, et cetera, right? Uh, or A, R, C, G, A, T. Yeah, those are the four letters. So, so, uh, like, uh, so, so you can, um, so those four letters and whatever sequence can represent DNA. Very similarly, FISNA uh, can express everything in uh, non-biological form uh, or biological, doesn't really matter, three-dimensional form in, in, um, in two-dimensional in, uh, text. So the cool thing about making that leap is that now we can uh, bridge that gap by having software understand how to influence the physical world and how physical things relate. That gap is a really big gap because uh, to, to bridge. And the great thing about having bridged it is that 
when um, we've actually run a lot of tests in, on, on machine learning. Um, so and we have machine learning in our product. And what's amazing about it is, I'm not trying to brag here, I'm just I'm excited more about the core technology here than anything, um, is that by having bridged that, the machine learning, uh, we didn't know this would, uh, what exactly would happen, but we found that it's between 10,000, and uh, depending on what data you're working with, between 10,000 and 100,000 times more uh, powerful, uh, more accurate, faster, I should say, at learning than any other input that we've tried. So in other words, a good way of thinking about this would be if, you, if I wanted to know your name, let's say, uh, this is a bad example, but let's just, let's just stick with it because I'm already in for a penny for that. So <laughs> I, I, I want to I guess your name with a picture, right? Let's say I need 500,000 pictures of you to do that. I don't know why. Let's just, let's just roll with it. But you need 500,000 pictures to do with that. And that, if that's the ratio of pictures we would need, we would need five 3D models of you to make the guesser name, right? So moving on to a more realistic example, if I want to predict how well something will perform, how much something is going to cost, how something should be manufactured, how something should be made, um, or back to another use we I kind of touched on earlier, which, you know, this isn't something that we actively work on, but I know it's theoretically possible. You know, if there's something wrong with you physically, if, if you might have a, an early stage tumor or something like that, um, it's a significant jump uh, because you have so much more data in 3D than you do in 2D. And a good analogy would be if I knew everything about every cell in your body versus if I had a picture of you. I know it's it's infinite, you know, almost. I mean, it's it's right. a ridiculous yeah. exponential growth uh, of data. So when you have that growth in data, machine learning can be a lot more powerful. And one of the cool things about what we're doing is the machine learning that we have, machine learning is kind of, Standardized. That's not standardized. They're very, very different processes you can use. But you know, we're using like the industry's best standards of machine learning. But we're not. We haven't like created our own type of machine learning from from, from the from the ether or whatever, right? Where you can apply the same machine learning principles, and they'll just work that much better because it's um, it's deductive reasoning. It can it can guess that a lot faster. The reason that I can guess your name in five and uh, maybe five tries versus five hundred thousand tries is because if I have three D, you know, maybe I can look in your wallet, right? <laughs> so, uh, it, it, so, so we have more data to work with. It's easier to make guesses. So wow. I, I don't know if that helps, but th but th that's one of the things we're trying to help with. And so to, to really get us towards singularity, that's the first step that has to happen. And, um, and I think the next step is. Uh, is the reverse, right? So what we're doing right now is, uh, what we've done right now, I guess I should say, is we've taken 3D and we've explained it in 2D. Now we need to do, and we're actively working on this actually, is going in the opposite direction. Saying, okay, now go from 2D and go into 3D. Um, a good example of that would be, look, I really want a mechanical watch that has this logo on it that I like, and I want it to be the really good watch. I want it to work just like a Rolex, the same tickiness as a Rolex, whatever. You, you, you use your own uh, colloquial description of it, and then uh, there you go. There's your three-dimensional watch, right? right? It's, 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 that's actually not the big leap um, at a conceptual level, because if we can describe a watch like that, mm -hmm. you know, if you give me a 3D model, we can give you that output. This is a 3D model of a watch that has this logo on it, and it has this script, blah, 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 blah. It's not that difficult to then go in the up. I mean, it's not easy. Obviously, it's going to take a while. <laughs> but it's, it's not very hard to imagine why you can go in the opposite direction. That's why I was saying I don't think you actually have to define things at some point. I think at some point you'll just describe what you want and it'll be done. That's fascinating. And uh, yeah, it's it sounds hugely complex. So uh, a problem that uh, I'm glad we've got a brain like yours that's working on solving it, to be honest. Well, my I, brain doesn't know how to code. So uh, if it was my brain working on this, you guys would be waiting for an, an infinite period of time. We've got some really smart people on the team who actually turn this rambling ADD guy's thoughts into something that actually does something <laughs> useful. No, that's perfect. That's that that's that's a perfect segue into the next question that I had for you because this is a program about leadership and technology, right? And we're not just tech nerds; we're also leadership nerds. So, for everything that you've described, it, there has to be a great team behind you. And I I heard you state it in your intro that at some point you you recognized that there was a need. You were going to have to evolve beyond being just a contributor. And that ultimately you were really going to have to, to build the team in order to start taking these things from a leadership perspective with the, the level of complexity that you've described to us, what have been some of your biggest challenges in determining how you would assemble a team like that? Now that you're operational, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you find that you're running into? The biggest challenge in running a, uh, a company like this is, or any company really is, um, you make your point, you, you know, 
you can't get into the weeds too much, even though I, I sound like I'm really in the weeds right now. If you were to pull up our code in front of me and say, hey, what's going on here? I'd be like, I have no idea what that is. Uh, it looks like Chinese algebra. Uh, so like, <laughs> stay out of the weeds is an important part. But when but the hard thing to do is to hire the right people to do that when you're not going to spend the time to actually review every line of code that they write, which you can't. I mean, you know, I'm not really technically illiterate, but like, uh, uh, but I certainly don't have the time or the energy or the interest to spend all that time going over God knows how many lines of code. And, um, and you can't, cause I wouldn't be able to do everything else that I have to do. So the hardest thing is to find somebody who's technically competent and, um, and competent in other areas too. My goal as CEO of this company is to eventually become the dumbest person in this company. That is my absolute goal. And I mean that wholeheartedly. <laughs> I want to become the most useless person in this company eventually. Now, let me caveat that. I don't want to become increasingly stupid or increasingly useless. <laughs> but what I want to do is hire people who are so much better than me that eventually I am the, the, the weakest link in the company. Like that, that is your goal as CEO is the, is the up level the company. And of course I want to scale with it, right? I want to, I want to scale. It's a, that's a moving target, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want, or it should be. So, but I want to hire people who are much, much, much better salespeople than I am. I want to hire people who are much, much, much better marketers, much, much, much better uh, technical uh, developers and technical leaders um, than I am. So that, and that's honestly, at some point that becomes your main job, right? Is to make sure that you're in the best brains in every role and that everybody sees the vision so that they act as a cohesive unit um, and not as individuals with separate motives. So the biggest thing in leadership, I, I feel is goal alignment. Um, telling people, getting people excited about what you're doing is the most important thing you can do. And um, well, it's probably tied with the other uh, most important thing you can do with me, the second most important thing you can do, which is find people who um, honestly have the same goal, who, who believe in what you're doing and are and have talents that you don't and acknowledging that you don't have, you know, that you don't want to be more talented than them. I think a lot of people limit themselves as leaders because they feel challenged by people who are better than them in one area or another. You know, when you start a company as CEO, the E stands for everything office, you know, everything, right? I'm chief everything officer. I do everything because I just started this company, right? It's really easy to become CEO. Start an LLC, you're a CEO, all right? You know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's they're like, oh, it's so hard to become that. No, it's the easiest job in the world to get. You can do it for 15 bucks. It's really easy to become a CEO. Um, having people who actually work for you, that was a little bit different. And so, you know, so, but at the beginning, you're chief everything officer. And so, you have to always be willing to let go and delegate. And that's a, a hard thing to do because you have to, you're, because you're very passionate. You've got this thing that is, it means everything to you, right? I mean, like eventually if, if it doesn't, then you're, you're doing the wrong thing. I mean, if you don't obsess about what you're doing, then you should stop doing it. Um, but, um, you know, you have this thing that becomes your baby. Like if someone were to talk down about FISNA, I would be very much, I'd be, I don't know if I have the right word would be that I'd be parental about it uh, or, or that I would almost feel personally about it because I, I almost like my identity becomes the same as the company. So oh, sure. it feels like mm -hmm. that. So trusting people who to do something who, when you're already in the middle of it and especially when they're new and you're like, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You don't understand what's going on. This, especially it's like, it's a complicated product. Like, how the hell are you going to do a better job than I'll do? Cause I've been working on this for years and you just heard about it and you barely were able to recite it back to me. So I'm not going <laughs> to trust you to go out there and do this. You know, so it's hard to let go, but you have to, you have to uh, go through that process, find really good people and find people who are self-motivated so that you don't have to spend too much time uh, explaining things over and over again to them or uh, directing them. If they're really motivated about the same thing you are, they have goal alignment. And that's, um, you know, it's far more powerful to have a great team around you than just to do everything on your own. At some point, you, you can't scale your time. Your time is the most valuable asset that you have. It's more valuable than money. It's the great equalizer in life. We all have the same number of hours in a day. Um, no matter how rich you are, you can't buy more of it. So uh, <laughs> using your time right is... Uh, very important. Oh, that's great. Thank you. You know, one other thing that I, I think would be interesting to get your perspective on is with what we've gone through with the recent pandemic, uh, you know, we're not, we're not over it yet, right? I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of places in lockdown as of when our recording date here. Um, but there is going to be a significant transformation for every type of industry, every type of business, every type of, you know, human to human interaction. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you foresee and, and how does a company like FISNA play a role in how it can help uh, with some of the transformation that needs to take place? Well, I mean, the, there's a lot that has to change. Um, 
the, the frustrating thing about humans, except for the other things I've expressed frustration about, is that um, we are really bad students of history. And things can repeat. You know, this is not the first time we've had a pandemic. This, <laughs> we're, we're lucky that this isn't the Black Death. We'd be all we'd all be dead by now. I mean, it's uh, we're not we're not we weren't prepared to handle a pandemic, even though we've been through it many 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 times as a species, and we have it in written records. It's not like we we have forgotten about these pandemics. So we weren't really doing anything to prepare for it. To the to, I mean, we were, but not to a sufficient extent. And uh, now that we see that it can happen, people are having, you know, it's a wake up call, and people are like, oh, well, yeah, we actually do need to be kind of careful with about this stuff. So there'll be some changes for sure. And the uh, short, the long-term ones are ultimately, I think, going to be, unless technology uh, is a facilitator of uh, changes uh, that lead to unintended consequences, humans, because we're such terrible students of history, uh, my my less optimistic prognosis is eventually people are going to go back to doing everything the exact same way they were before. It won't look the same because in the future the technology is going to be different. We won't all be shaking hands maybe because we'll all be in some kind of spacesuit. But, but we will be going, our natural tendencies are going to go back to what they always were. And the shorter term economically, um, uh, what the impacts are, um, you we're definitely seeing with a lot of companies that you know they have. Uh, putting people on furlough and, and they've asset freezes and stuff the, the i don't want to say lucky because i don't want to try and make a good thing out of a pandemic it's killing people but um in the case of FISNA, what we found is that uh, we've been less unfortunate in some ways because a lot of companies from an, i mean that purely and only from an economic standpoint um and that other companies have realized areas where they need to Improve and where we can help them, right? So one of the things that a lot of companies have realized is, hey, having stuff stored on 20 different physical services in 20 different parts of the country is not very good when no one can go to work. Um, they've also realized, hey, if I only order this part from this one vendor and they aren't able to deliver for some reason or deliveries are postponed for some reason, what do I do if my factory shuts down at $2 million a day in loss, right? So um, what we've been able to do is, uh, we've actually had an increase in interest um i can't say I don't, again i won't say that it's a good thing because it's uh it obviously affects everybody in, in a very negative way it's, it's a sad thing but from a pure like sales lead perspective um lead generation has gone up uh, you know inbound because people have realized that hey we have a lot of inefficiencies uh, especially on the supply chain side and they've realized that um you know one of the things that we're able to do at FISNA is say hey look okay i know that you like ordering bolt a one b two from this one supplier over in this one city that turns out dude that part is actually the exact same thing as these other 57 parts that you've got and you're ordering those from different from the same people person but they're 57 different people so actually you could save a lot of money if you just order everything from one but you have 58 options <laughs> you can order that from and you're shutting down your line for two million dollars a day because you're waiting on this guy when you have 57 people over here who are happy to deliver that part to you and uh, you just don't realize it's the same part because it is an important number but geometrically and in every way shape and form this is the exact same thing and you'd be so that sounds like a really stupid situation um that's the case in most actually i'll willing to say that's the case in every company i've spoken to uh every company i've spoken to has that problem at some extent and sometimes it's minor minor being maybe five percent of their data is, is finds cell phone and duplicates most of them are the mature are significant and there are some i've talked to who have between 30 and 100 on average between 30 and 100 duplicates for every single part and you can imagine how problematic that is not just because 30 to 100 people designed the same thing over and over and over again, and they went through approval and all this other stuff for the same thing. It's also frustrating because they're ordering that many parts from that many different vendors, not knowing they're identical. And then when they need a spare, they're they're ordering it, even though they've got 99 spare parts in the closet, they're totally fine. They don't realize it. So those are this is one example of the inefficiencies that we have that have been kind of brought to light by one a cog in the wheel going off because of um, COVID-19. So it's helped us from a lead perspective, but from a global perspective, from an economic perspective, I think that we're going to see actually a lot more of that. People are going to start to optimize and think, okay, how can I uh, become more efficient and less reliant on the physical presence of people all the time? Which is a good question to ask because, uh, uh, you know, I think that we rely on people uh, from a, like the, we rely on people for physical tasks that. Um, I, I don't believe at all, by the way, that when you use robots that, uh, for manufacturing, that you're necessarily replacing people's jobs in the long, maybe, maybe temporarily, but not long term. No, no human being should ever have to do anything that's repetitive and that can be automated. If you can be automated, you need to take a very deep look at yourself and say, why am I doing this job? Because you have a lot more to offer. And technology um, doesn't take jobs. If you look back at history, you know, 
before the pandemic, we had some of the lowest unemployment in history. Um, not, but you got the same time. We just made all the blacksmiths totally obsolete because we don't have horseshoes anymore, right? So no one rides horses anymore. So the car is supposed to, you know, that, that didn't knock out any jobs, right? Um, we just shift and where we apply people and it becomes more and more high value, the, the output that people get. They're still farmers, but they're not using handheld tools. They're using um, large mechanical devices to rake in, you know, to harvest the crops at the speed of 100 individuals. And eventually those will be self-driving. And, but that means that that farmer can do something more creative with their time. So I think that's, so I think it's actually going to push things in the right direction from a macroeconomic standpoint. From a humanity standpoint, I think that it's a disaster that we, Probably should have been preparing for more than we did, and um, I think that uh, some people are being a little bit irrational on both sides of the table. Uh, one thing that concerns me is that some people are going out and acting like just because the government's reopening um, that everything's fine again. But if they, it's like if you if you need proof that people, uh, as I mentioned earlier in this in one of my other seven or so long-winded, you know, ADD rambling. <laughs> um, we need proof that people think in uh, linear terms, not, um, you know, they don't understand. They're like, we understand maybe conceptually, but we don't naturally think in terms of exponential growth. Uh, everybody was talking about flattening the curve of COVID. And um, we, and, and now everyone's declaring victory and everyone's going out and they're kissing their neighbors or whatever they're doing, but, but they're not wearing masks anywhere. There's, there's, you hear all the traffic behind me right now, right? I mean, it's crazy. Everyone acts like, oh yeah, yesterday that we, Signed up a deal with the virus is now and now it's gone. It left. And we we sent them an eviction notice. No, it's not how it works. Um, what, what happened is we flattened it from exponential growth to linear growth. So if you look at the, the chart, instead of being a hockey stick, it's a straight line. But it's more dangerous right now to go out than it was in March or April when you wouldn't go out just for any reason, right? But mm -hmm. for some reason, with twice as many cases as back then, everyone thinks, oh, it's gone. Because We've been looking at an exponential curve this whole time, so it looks flat, but it's not flat. It's actually, it's actually, it's, it's actually going up. It's just the good news is it's not a hockey stick. So anyway, you asked for me for an opinion on something, and that's where you went wrong because I gave you. <laughs> no, I, no, all good stuff. We, we love informed opinions, and, exactly. and you certainly have one. So, so thank you for all those responses. <laughs> so as we're closing down on our time, there, there's one question I always like to ask all of our guests is, is there a book that has had a big influence on your impact or a piece of media or something that you like to give or share with everybody? Yeah, a lot of it has. I mean, we talked a little bit about Ray Kurzweil and, uh, and there are many, I mean, that's not like what I read every day. There's a lot of things. Um, sorry, I'm going to, I'll bring this to a close. A close sure. No worries. No, take all the time you need. I'm pretty sure most people, they think, okay, Paul's advice was why say one word when 20 will suffice. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anyway, um, the, the, um, one book that I think is really, really valuable and is not probably on most people's top 10 business must-read lists, but I think is probably one of the most important books I've read in the past few years is a book called The Happiness Advantage. And I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but if you look it up, you'll find it. It's a pretty common, uh, it's a pretty well-known book. And what I really like about it is that it takes a very scientific approach to how people think and um, and the, the reward systems that we have. And one of the biggest things that I that I like to focus on when I, when I do, when I read, and typically I read through like audible books when I'm driving, but um, what I like to focus on are the more uh, macro picture things than the macro picture things. I really believe that if you have the right mindset and you have the right uh, mental energy, you will teach yourself everything else. You will, if you're energized and you're excited and you're, 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 you're you must achieve something in, in life. You'll easily learn all the strategies and tools and tips and all that fun stuff. Learning all the strategies and tools and tips and whatnot before you have your mind in the right place, though, or without keeping your mind in the right place, is totally useless. Because if you won't get off the couch, why does any of that matter? So um, I think The Happiness Advantage is a really good book because it really highlights um, something that's really not intuitive, which is that we have uh, one that we typically think in terms of I have to get to this point to become happy. And that starts a cycle, right? Where you, um, you're, you're not happy because you haven't achieved something yet. And therefore, um, but because that lack of happiness makes you less creative and less energetic and less, uh, and less enthusiastic, you, you basically have less fuel to burn. You um, set lower and lower and lower and lower goals and you're sadder and sadder and sadder and sadder. But you can stop that by just saying, Look, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be happy because it's a fuel and um, you'll start hitting goals. And those will inevitably help to 
fuel your happiness, but you don't become dependent on them. And it's, it's a really interesting book because there's a lot of studies and there's a lot of um, really valuable objective data. So I would highly recommend that you read that. I'll have to check it out. It, it sounds kind of similar to that delivering happiness um, that uh, Tony Shea from, from um, was it Zappos kind of wrote something similar to that. But this sounds like, like a very interesting read. I'm going to have to add that one onto my queue. Just yeah. do it. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, Paul Powers, you, uh, I'll tell you what, having, uh, having you on the show is, uh, you know, uh, a podcast, uh, uh, greatest, uh, boon. You are, uh, uh, <laughs> you're a mouthful, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Not much work on our end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Next time you can just say, you can, you can just put up like, uh, your, your zoom background can just be a question and then you can just go for an hour. <laughs> No, it's great. It's, it is interesting getting some insight into the way that you think and you're thinking about very complex things. And I think uh, the way that you present is very reflective of that. So it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program and, and getting some of your insights. Um, I, I think we probably got about three or four podcasts worth out of this, uh, this one program. <laughs> <laughs> So Paul, people transcript version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, thankfully yeah, we've got yeah. we, we've got AI to help us with that. So you know, there you go. Be yeah. easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, if people are looking for you or uh, Fizna, where where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn's a really effective way. Uh, just go to um, just looking at Paul Powers. It's pretty easy to spell, but Fizna is P H Y S N A. Uh, Fizna, uh, short for physical DNA. If that helps, but there's no D, so Fizna. Um, and if you look me up, I'm happy to talk to people who are interested. Sure. Perfect. We'll be sure to uh, post all your relative links to your LinkedIn and and uh, your website in the show notes so that everyone can find it. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for right, taking really the time out of your time. schedule to join us today. No worries. Thank you for taking time out of a Friday evening before a holiday weekend to talk to me. That's, yeah. uh, that's a big honor. I know that that, that time is precious. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's thanks. been time well spent. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Here.